Good morning. Good morning. I don't know if anybody's out there this morning. <laughs> Good to be with you this morning. Before we go to God's Word, let's pray again. And can I ask you to, this morning, join me not only in praying for the Lord to bless His Word, but ask the Lord to, uh, I've been sick the last couple of days, and so ask the Lord to, to bless me here physically uh, so Jeremy doesn't have to finish the sermon. Is that right? Let's pray. Father, we give you praise that you are speaking, God. And we very much desire to hear from you this morning. That you would, as we were singing, speak to us. Lord, your servants, listen. Give us ears to hear. Grant that we might see more of Jesus than we have known before. As we look to get to know him. And grant, O oh Lord, that what we know, what we learn, draws us closer to him. Lord, help us to adore the Savior this morning, we ask. We pray, O oh Lord, for strength in our bodies. Lord, I pray for strength with my voice and a clear head and ability to speak this morning. And I pray for the congregation. Uh, for many have had long weeks and uh, others, too, are perhaps uh, weak in body and so we pray that you would strengthen the listener as well as the speaker, that your word might go forth with clarity and be received with gladness. And we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you are sort of parachuting in at the beginning of a new sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is one of the four Gospels. Um, these are accounts of the life and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Luke is one of what's called the synoptic gospels, one of those gospels that see together along with Matthew and Mark uh, and tell a very common story along with Matthew and Mark. Uh, in the gospels is where we learn about Christ, and in the gospels, it's a striking thing. We don't learn a great deal about Jesus' childhood. Almost everything we know about the childhood of Christ is right here in the text, these couple of chapters we've been considering over the last couple of weeks, Luke's chapters 1 and 2. And this morning we're going to consider uh, the boy Jesus. We looked at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ last week, and, and we understood from that passage that Jesus, that infant, is in fact Lord. He's God. He's Christ the Lord. And the week before that, we looked at the the pregnancy narratives where Mary and Elizabeth both miraculously were allowed to conceive children. And it was striking to us that Jesus was a fetus. And part of what we're learning about Jesus as we get to know him is something about his incredible humility. The Lord of glory, infinite in majesty, in the womb of a young virgin. And the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, as Hebrews 1 tells us, does it lying in a manger. And this morning we want to come and we want to think about Jesus as a growing boy. And this is what Luke shows us in Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 52. If you're using one of the Bibles that are provided, you'll find it on page 857. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the brothers in the back will, will gladly bring you one. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 857. 
Now, this passage covers sort of three windows of time. We actually have three scenes here. One scene is there in verse 21. Notice there, it's when Jesus is eight days old and he's about to be circumcised. The other scene um, begins uh, about a month or so later, just a little bit over a month later, down in verse 22, that reference to when her time of purification had come. According to the Old Testament law, which we'll see, that's about 33 days. So in verses 22 down to verse 40, we get a look at Jesus as a one-month-old. And then when we come to verse 41 and 42, you'll see there, Jesus is about 12 years old. So our text this morning covers about 12 years of Jesus' early life. And the thing that we're told repeatedly, verse 40 and verse 52, is that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's verse 40. Verse 52 is very similar. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What we're meant to see in this text is something of what it looks like for our Savior and by implication our own children to grow in wisdom and favor with God. Jesus had three things that contributed to that. And these are three things I trust that our children need as well. Number one, he had righteous parents. Righteous parents. You see that there in verses 21 to 24. Number two, our Lord had a revealed purpose. A revealed purpose. You see that in verses 25 to 40. And number three, he not only had righteous parents, but responsible parents. You see that in verses 41 to 52. May the Lord help us to get to know Jesus, the growing boy, as we look at Luke 2. Luke 2, beginning in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation." that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not part from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in a group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, here we see, as I said, the, the fragments of Jesus' early life. His boyhood, his growing years, and we, we hear that refrain that he, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And the question becomes, well, how did that happen, at least naturally speaking? What, what was it that contributed to the, the growth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing we see is that he had righteous parents. You see that in verses 21 to 24. And their righteousness is reflected in at least two things. Number one, notice that their righteousness is reflected in their obedience to the angel. You remember from Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1 that an angel had appeared separately to Mary and to Joseph, saying that Mary would conceive a child miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Mary stumbled at that at first, but, but she believed God. Now, you remember from Matthew chapter 1 that, that we're told that Joseph is a righteous man, and Joseph had, had decided when he found out that Mary was pregnant to put her away quietly, not wanting to embarrass her. But an angel appeared to Joseph as well and said, no, go ahead and marry her. The child she's carrying is from the Holy Spirit. And the angel said to both Mary and to Joseph independently, you shall name the child Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 21, tells us what that means, because he shall save his people from their sin. His name basically means Savior. And in Luke 2, 21, what we see nine months or so later is Joseph and Mary completing their obedience to the angel's revelation, obeying what God had said to them through the angel. Now, we've come to 
love the name Jesus if we're Christians. We, we sing songs about it, just to, something about that name and, and other songs that celebrate the, the life of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that it's at that name that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <laughs> you ever thought about what it would have been like if they had named him Earl? just don't fit, does it? <laughs> he was purposed to be named this. God had that purpose in mind. And have you ever thought about what a wonderful encouragement it might have been for Mary and Joseph to call Jesus by name? How every time they called him by name, or if not every time, many times they called him by their name, their minds went back to the visitation from the angel. And what the angel had, had said about this son, this special son who had saved their people from their sins. So they're, they're very calling their son by name was a reminder and an encouragement in obedience, wasn't it? And how calling him Jesus should have been on those days where they were thinking and reflecting upon his name. A reminder that God had visited his people too, had sent the Savior in this son. That little simple act of naming him is indicative of their faith in God and their righteousness with God. But notice the second thing. They, they show their righteousness also by obeying the law of God. They respond not just to the, the supernatural revelation that they get from this angel, but they respond also to the written text too. And that's a, that's a wonderful encouragement to us because sometimes Christians are sure that God has told them to do something. That's the language that they use. God told me to so-and-so. And you say, well, can we square that with the Bible? Well, I know what God told me. I don't care what the Bible says. You can be pretty sure then that God hasn't told that person such a thing. And here's what we see with Mary and Joseph. They not only have an unusual revelation from the angel who visits them, they have the regular revelation of God's word. And they believe God's word. And they obey God's word. How do we see that? Keep your finger there in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, and flip back to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. Because Luke, 22, Luke chapter 2, verses 21 and 24 is, is just a moving picture, an application of Leviticus chapter 12. If you're using the Bibles that we provided, I think that's on page 90. Look at what God's law says in Leviticus chapter 12. And keep in mind what we read in Luke chapter 2. It's a demonstration of their righteousness and their faithfulness before God. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 30 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 60 days. This is one of those texts where you go, ah, I shouldn't use that cross-reference because verse 5 is kind of sticky. So let me explain that real quickly. God's not a chauvinist. 
Not a big, he didn't have a, a low view of women and the birth of female children. That, that kind of chauvinism surely exists in, in many religious circles. You, you think of conservative Islam, you think of rabbinic Judaism of, of ancient times, they had a low view of women. What, what's happening here in verse 5? Well, I think this is all about blood and the way blood makes you unclean ceremonially. And, and I think it's probably the best explanation is, in some ways, the, the sort of longer offering there in verse 5 is an offering for both the mother and the female child. And it's probably the best way to understand that as opposed to some kind of double standard and, and some kind of um, prejudice toward women. But look at what verses 1 to 4 tell us. They give us a whole timeline for um, the early life of a child following a pregnancy. Seven days, a woman is, is unclean because of the childbirth, because of the blood. The eighth day, the baby's circumcised. And then 33 days further, more, they're still the sort of purifying, at the end of which you take this one-month-old baby and you present him to the Lord. You dedicate him to the Lord. And that is precisely what we see Mary and Joseph obeying in Luke chapter 2 down to the letter. Notice verse 21. On the eighth day, he circumcised. Verse 22. When the time of her purification was completed, what do they do? They go to the temple to present this baby to the Lord. In verse 23, Matthew gives us this parenthetical statement. He reminds us of what God had said in the Exodus when God saved the firstborn children of Israel in the Passover. He reminds us that every male child who first opens the womb belongs to the Lord. And here's these parents dedicating their children to the Lord, dedicating Jesus to the Lord as belonging to him as the word has instructed them. So we have here righteous parents doing all that God requires in the raising of their children. Now, what's interesting about verse 24 is the offering they give. Do you notice there? Luke chapter 2, verse 24, they offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, if you've kept your finger in Leviticus chapter 12, go back to Leviticus chapter 12, that same chapter that we were just reading from. I should have kept my finger there too. That same chapter that we were just reading from, because it goes on to talk not only about the, the, the purification, but then the offering, verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. Verse 8 is key. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. When we read in Luke 2.24 that she offered two pigeons or two turtle doves, we're reading in so many words that Mary... <coughs> we're reading in so many words that Mary and Joseph were poor. 
They couldn't afford the offering of a lamb. They could only afford the offering of pigeons and turtle doves. Now, I think we ought to think about this for a moment. Because maybe it helps us with our theology of poverty. There are at least seven things that we should say real quickly then about poverty based upon the fact that our Lord was incarnate to poor parents. Number one, poverty is not a sin. Poverty is not a sin. Number two, poverty is not a sign of God's disapproval. Poverty, contrary to Creflo Dollar and some others, is not a sign that God disapproves of you. Number three, poverty does not prevent a person from worshiping God. Poverty does not prevent a person from worshiping God. Number four, poverty does not doom the person forever. Poverty doesn't doom a person forever. Number five, poverty does not excuse unrighteousness. These are righteous parents who are poor, and their poverty is no excuse to ignore the word of God or the instruction of God from the angels. It doesn't excuse unrighteousness. Number six, therefore, poverty is not shameful in and of itself. We don't have to be ashamed if we're poor. Our Lord was poor. Number seven, poverty is a cross that God entrusts to some people. Poverty is a cross. So if some, if some teacher or preacher tries to convince you that poverty is a sin or, or the fact that you're poor means that God does not approve of you in some way or that you have a certain amount of money that you have to give to be able to, to worship God. If somebody tells you that because you're poor, that means your, your sins are excused or your behavior is excused in some way, don't listen to that teacher. Remember Jesus. Jesus and his family were poor, and none of those things were true of him. He was not in sin. The father was well pleased with him. He, he lived not only in poverty, but he lived in righteousness along with his, with his parents. Now, poverty is hard. Poverty is a cross, and there are a lot of temptations and a lot of challenges that come along with, with poverty. But, but for many of us, and this is the challenge, we have to think as to whether or not God has entrusted us with poverty as the better state for our souls. We don't often think that way. We tend to think that poverty is the curse. And, and poverty is the hardship, and God has neglected us in our poverty, but it may be God is sparing you by leaving you in poverty. Why would you say that? Proverbs 28, verse 6. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity, the righteous poor, than the rich man who is crooked in his ways. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who, never, who no longer knew how to take advice. You can be a king with riches and power 
And because of riches and power, you don't listen to anybody. And that condition is worse than being a little boy who's wise enough to take instruction. I quoted J.C. Ryle a number of times, Ryle a number of times last week. Let me, let me quote him here as well. He says this, Let us beware of despising the poor because of their poverty. Their condition is one which the Son of God has sanctified and honored by taking it voluntarily on himself. God is no respecter of persons. He looks at the hearts of men and not at their incomes. Let us never be ashamed of the cross of poverty if God thinks it is no disgrace to be poor. A mean or, or poor dwelling place and coarse food and a hard bed are not pleasing the flesh and blood. In other words, nobody wants to be poor, naturally. But they are the portion which the Lord Jesus himself willingly accepted from the day of his entrance into the world. And Ralph says this, Wealth ruins far more souls than poverty. When the love of money begins to creep over us, let us think of the manger at Bethlehem and of him who was laid in it. Such thoughts may deliver us from harm. And you can hear the words of Paul from 1 Timothy, can't you? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That people in their love for money have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Oh, no, beloved, poverty isn't by definition a curse. It may be God's best blessing. It may be the best means for us to look up and to call out upon him. So what do we do with this? Well, as Christians, a couple of applications. Number one, Christian, let us be sure that we do not despise the poor. How easy, how sneaky is that pride that enters into our hearts that looks down its nose on people less fortunate than us? How easy does it corrupt even our best charity? We, we gave and we feel proud. We feel proud not just that we gave, but we're not among those who need to be given too. And you know that that might be in your heart in those moments where you do need help and you refuse to allow people to help you. Pride is a sneaky thing. Let us not despise the poor. Our Lord was poor. Number two, let us not be deceived by riches. Riches is not God's approval of us either. Our riches may be our, our greatest trial. Let us pray like Agur in Proverbs 30. Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. They each have their own temptation. Let us be wary of them both. And parents, how does this apply to us as Christian parents? Well, just to say this, righteous parents, even who are poor, make a huge difference in the life of their children. It's not about what we can give our children in the way of material things. It's about how we model for them faithful obedience and service to the Lord. You give your child that, you will, given, you will have given them everything they need for life and godliness. You teach your child the scripture, and it will be said of you, just as it was said of Timothy's mother and grandmother, that your child was made wise unto salvation because of the very nature of the scripture itself. You, you give your child the treasure of the scripture, and you will give them riches for a lifetime and eternity. And the good news is, the word of God is free. 
The word of God is free. So even the poor can afford it. Poverty and righteousness is far better than wealth and crookedness. And you might be saying, well, I'm a parent and I'm not righteous like Mary and Joseph. Here's some more good news for you. While you yet breathe, you have opportunity to repent and believe. You have opportunity to to recognize, yes, your sin, which we all have, and your failings, which we all have as parents. There's nothing quite like parenthood to make you insecure about your ability. We all stumble in many ways as parents, and and yet it is the nature of God to be gracious and kind towards sinners, even parents who sin, even parents who sin against their children. You you may recognize some failings in your life with regard to your parenting. (laughs) There is no failing in your parental life that Christ himself has not overcome. If you would repent of those sins and failings, confess them to God, and seek his grace through faith in Christ his son. It's never too late for us to become righteous parents through faith in Christ. One last application to us as as an entire church. I wonder if we can follow the Lord's example, his unique example in in our own appropriate ways, of, of being incarnate among the poor. Not as saviors, because only Jesus is savior. Not as though we've got it all together and we're the heroes who've come to fix somebody else and come to deliver somebody else, but no, as fellow beggars who themselves needed the bread of God's salvation. I wonder if we can be increasingly committed, if we're poor, to trusting God in our poverty and living faithfully for him, or if we have some means, some wealth of of committing it to God, setting it aside really, in order as Christ has done, who left the, the riches of glory to take upon himself our poverty in order for us to move in next to someone, in a community, in a neighborhood, in a social circle, among those without. But most seriously, without the gospel, but also without means. You've heard me say this before. I'm convinced you can't reach a community you don't live in. Our mission as a church is to reach Southeast D.C., to reach Anacostia, Fairlawn, Randall Heights, uh, to reach um, Shipley Terrace, to reach all the little neighborhoods and nooks and crannies where people made in God's image live. And to do that, we've got to be present. The neighborhood's full of commuter churches, and I'm not casting any shade on them. The neighborhood's full of churches with members who maybe grew up in the neighborhood and, and at some point moved out. And it's still their church home, so they drive back on Sundays and they worship on Sunday mornings, but they drive back out to Maryland and Virginia. And the rest of the week, there's no gospel witness coming from that congregation in this community. We want to be committed to the opposite, to live in the community, to serve the community, to love the people here, to enter into the brokenness that, that we share and the people that we see, and to bring the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can drive out to Virginia and Maryland and go shopping, but we got to come back home here. I, I wonder if we could receive this as a fresh challenge to uproot our lives and to plant them here for the advance of the gospel and the blessing of our neighbors. Now, that's not a law. That's not something everybody has to do. I'm not giving you some new commandment. It's a challenge. 
to ask you if you might use your freedom to do that and do it gladly. What did Jesus have? He had righteous parents. Number two, what did Jesus have? He had a revealed purpose. We see that in verses 25 to 40. Verses 25 and 26 tell us about uh, Simeon. Simeon, this old man, notice how he's described there, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26 tells us that God had made a promise to Simeon. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What an amazing promise. That God had not just generally promised that a Savior would come, but had promised to this particular man, I'm going to let you see him before you die. And, And notice not only what we learn about Simeon's person, but notice what we learn about Anna down in verses 36 and 37. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I love these old persons. They challenge us. Look at Simeon, this old man, waiting for the consolation of Israel. On the strength of God's promises, fighting old age and death, because God said he would not pass from this life to the next until he had seen the Messiah with his own eyes. See how he's described there? He's righteous and devout. Even unto old age, old age is no, and listen, old age is not permission to cruise. You you don't get to sort of lapse out of godliness because you reached a certain age. Look at Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't figured it out by now, Luke is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just appears all throughout his writings in the gospel and in Acts. The Holy Spirit is connected with the given of revelation, and he gives this revelation to Simeon. And if, and if Simeon was tough, he ain't got nothing on Anna. Here's this young woman, probably over 100 years old. Let's assume she married when she was 16. She remained in that marriage seven years, the Bible tells us. Her husband dies, and for 84 years, 84 years, she lives as a faithful widow, chaste and devout, seeking God. You notice what what it says there? She's in the temple day and night. She never leaves. She's worshiping and fasting and in prayer. And we think we serve God when we come to church on Sunday and have a potluck and Mr. Football kickoff. We did a lot that Sunday. Don't let us go to Wednesday night Bible study. Oh, we real holy then. Not compared to Anna. Waiting on the Lord seeking the Lord, praying and fasting and hoping. And can you imagine what treasures these two older saints would have been to Israel? I mean, take Anna. This woman can teach single women who are struggling with singleness something about how to remain chaste, can't she? She did it for 84 years. And not only that, she can teach other women who have had the blessing of marriage and lost their husbands how to grieve how to be a widow, and how to be faithful still and not bitter toward God. 
Oh my goodness, to have a to have a to have a Simeon among God's people? Old, eyes clouded, gray with age, but nevertheless able to see through the veil of this world into the world to come, hoping and trusting that God would indeed keep his promise. What a treasure that is. And I am in my own soul convinced that God has been so kind to ARC in that. I think about the older women and the older guys who have, who have come. Some of them wouldn't wish to be called old, Matt, um, but some of them are fine with it. Beloved, is not Connie Brown and Anna fervent in prayer, joyful in the Scripture, quick to encourage? Is not Eli Schmucker and Anna a Dorcas, hands always at work, caring for the people of God, delighting in the things of God? What about Wanda Matthews? Is she not an older sister who's been faithful to raise her family? And, and when the call to go plant a church came, she says, here am I, I will go. I mean, this church is full of older persons who are, who are Annas in their own rights and Simeons in their own rights. And I, I trust and hope that as a church, we never develop the attitude that sits older people on the side and retires them or puts them out to pasture. I think about Catherine Duncan's mom. <laughs> Never lived here. Didn't know anything about D.C. Wasn't coming because of her own will, but her son and daughter were coming. And every Sunday she's here, and most Sundays she finds this struggling preacher and gives him a word of encouragement. Praise God for her. So we, we should be a church that treasures our older people. And to our older saints, we want you to know that you are vital to the mission of God in the world. We're not just putting up with you. We expect you to pursue Christ the way Anna and Simeon do. We expect you to give of yourself to the work of the Lord because we need you. And God has purposed that through you, things that younger people can't teach would be taught. I just want to encourage you, if there's ever any sense that you don't matter or you have no role or no place... That comes not from the Lord, doesn't come from your pastors, doesn't come from your church. We need you. Lean in. Give yourself fully. God would make much of himself through your life, just as we see with Annie and Simeon. We see not only their person, but notice now, we said that our children need a revealed purpose, and that's what we learn about Jesus here. So uh, Simeon begins to prophesy when he comes into the temple, verse 27. He came into the, in the spirit, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, verse 28, I love this old man, he, he just goes over and takes the baby out of Mary's arms. And he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Verse 29 and 30 in the Thabiti paraphrases, Lord, I can come home now. You let me see what you promised I would see. And then he goes on. He begins to, to speak of this, the purpose that Jesus has. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He had been waiting on the consolation of Israel. The consolation came in the form of a baby, and that baby would be light and glory to the nations in Israel. In other words, 
A baby, verses 31 and 32, would be the savior of the whole world. Not just Jews, but Gentiles also. Those who did not know God through the covenant with Israel. And he gets, I believe, a glimpse of Calvary. So notice verse 34 and 35. He blesses, the, he blesses uh, Mary and Joseph now. And he says these, these words, almost strange words, as a blessing. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This one who is light and glory would also be opposed. When he says that Mary's heart would be pierced also, it implies that this son will be pierced. And was he not? For this one-month-old would soon be a 33-year-old. And when his time had fully come, he would have done all of his earthly miracles and all of his earthly teaching, and he would go to accomplish what he had been sent to accomplish, the salvation of the world. And he would do that on the cross of Calvary. There he would be mocked and beaten. There he would be rejected by men. There he would be pierced with a crown of thorns. And, and there, most horribly of all, God himself, the Father, who had always been pleased with his Son, would turn out his displeasure against sin on his Son. And he would suffer on the cross. And he would die. And Mary's heart would be broken along with all those who followed him. But three days later, he would be raised from the grave. Simeon here preaches the gospel in, in so many prophetic words. And, and Anna gets the message, doesn't she? You look down there in verse 38. Anna comes into the temple by the Holy Spirit as well. Anna sees the baby. She gives thanks to God. Now, here's, here's a, a simple lesson, a simple application. If God sends you a Savior, you ought to be thankful. She gives thanks to God. And then notice what she does. She gossips the gospel. She leaves from that place, that old lady, you can see her kind of picking up the hem of her skirt, and maybe she had a stick, but she was moving that day. And everyone who was waiting on the salvation of Jerusalem, everyone who in faith in their heart had been longing for the Messiah, she sought them out. She sought them out to tell them, I've got good news. God's son has come. Salvation has come. There's a Savior in Israel. Come. Trust the Lord. And the application is easy, isn't it? We too should go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere. We too should be people of good news. And because it's good news, we should not be ashamed to tell it. It's good news that we come bringing to the world. We, we do come with a word that alerts the world to their sin and God's judgment against sin, but that's not the final word. The final word is the resurrection. Christ has atoned for our sins. Christ has risen from the grave, and, and God has promised all who repent of their sins and trust in this crucified and resurrected Christ will no longer be guilty of their sins, but will have their sins cleansed and will be declared righteous through faith in Christ. And not only that, we'll be reconciled to God so that the sinner's warfare with God is finally and forever done away with. 
they're not just reconciled with God, but adopted by God into his own family. So that that sinner, once alienated from God, now is in God's family an inheritor of all that God has and is. And the really good news, it doesn't cost the sinner a thing. It simply must be received by repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Anna told out in her sort of perhaps undeveloped way. And this is what the Bible explains to us in the rest of its pages. And if we're Christians, this is what we have come to believe. And it's our glad privilege to tell it out. So, who do you know waiting on a Savior? Who do you know that's in need of this good news? Write down their names. Pray for them regularly. Whether they are far away or right next door, find a way to communicate this hope to them. Could be by email, could be by Skype, could be by visiting. But let's tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Here he is as a one month old, and he's already had his purpose revealed. And there's something about that that instructs us in our parenting as well. Again, I know that all parents think their kids are special. They're not so special that they're saviors now, all right? But there is a purpose for our kids as well. I, we may not know, just as when you look at chapter 2, verse 33, just as Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said about Jesus, which suggests they didn't know in detail what, what was actually being said about their son, we may not know in detail what the, what the sort of particular purposes will be in terms of God's work in our kids' life, but we do know this general purpose. They were made in his image that they might know him. And Christ has come for that very purpose. What a marvelous thing it is to raise kids, to try to raise kids at least, who know that God loves them. And God has demonstrated his love in this while they were still sinners, even as little kids, Christ died for them. Sometimes I think parents think of their kids and we idealize our kids we love our kids, we even idolize our kids, and we act like our kids, you know, don't sin. I love the way Vody Balkan puts it, you know, this ain't nothing but vipers and diapers. <laughs> <coughs> they need a savior too. And the best love a parent can give, even if we don't know all of God's purposes for our children, we do know clearly this much, that they were made to worship him and that he loves them. And to communicate that sense of love may be one of the best gifts we can give. Let's move to our third point. Christ had not only righteous parents and a revealed purpose, but number three, he also had responsible parents. We get that from the third scene when Jesus is 12 years old. You see it there beginning in verse 41 down to verse 52. Now, it's an interesting scene. We, we know it's 12 years later because of verses 41 and 42, where we're told that every year the family very devoutly went back to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. So we know they're responsible parents in their devotion to, Christian, to Jewish worship. But we also know they're responsible when it comes to watching over Jesus. 
That might be a strange thing to say because verses 43 and 44 tell us they went down to the Passover. They had a good time worshiping the Lord. They left in the caravan thinking Jesus was with them, and Jesus wasn't to be found anywhere. Now, how many of you have left your kids somewhere? You don't want to raise your hands and a couple of self-righteous people say, I ain't never did that, I ain't never did that. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Some of the rest of us have. I've, I've left all my kids at some place, and, and they're, they're turning out okay, you know, except for that fear of the janitor turning off the lights. They got this irrational fear of that, you know. <laughs> i never forget leaving church in Cayman a few years ago, getting home, and Chris and I had driven separately, and I get home a little bit early, and, and I'm sort of getting into my Sunday afternoon routine, and Christy comes home, and she begins to get into her Sunday afternoon routine. We're having a good time. Phone rings. I'm like, who's calling? Pick up the phone, and it's a sister in the church named Ronnie. She says, so do you want me to just drop Eden off at your house? <laughs> They're not bitter. <laughs> it's an honest mistake. <laughs> Don't judge me. You don't know my life. <laughs> I'm like Mary and Joseph, right? So, so they're headed back home from Jerusalem. Notice that the text says they traveled a whole day before they knew he was missing. Now, I beat, I beat that curve. They traveled a whole day before they knew he was missing. And when they discovered they were missing, he was missing. You go on in verse 44, they returned to Jerusalem. That's another day. And did you see how many days they looked for him in Jerusalem? Three days, five days, the child's been missing. I mean, there are amber alerts all over Jerusalem, right? They're looking for this child. And you know what's happening as they're looking? They're quietly blaming each other. You know? Joseph is walking, he's looking, he's trying not to show it on his face because men always pay for that when they show it on their face. So he's, not, he's trying not to do that. And he's walking, but in his head he's thinking, what kind of mother leaves the son of God? <laughs> If there's one rule, make sure the Son of God is in the caravan. We can't say that, right? And, and Mary's thinking what she's thinking, too. You know how the ladies think. I try not to go too deep into that labyrinth, but, he, you know, this is, this is what they're thinking. Look at him looking at me. I know he blamed me. Always blaming somebody. But I got up yesterday morning, and I fixed breakfast. I packed our lunch. And while he was out talking with his uncles, I packed up the tent, too. The least he could have did was keep an eye on his boy. It's his son, too. You know? So they, they walk in, and they, they, you know, they're thinking what they're thinking. They, they're aiming at each other, but they ain't saying it, right? <laughs> Five days later, they arrive at the temple, and guess who they find in the temple? Jesus. Did you notice, did you notice he's sitting there among the, the teachers? listening and asking questions, and they are marveling at him. This young boy of 12 years old, marveling and astounding the religious fathers of his day. And Mary and Joseph come in, and they, they're like blown away. And they, they come up to Jesus, and, and they, they get a break in the conversation. And you see what Mary says there? She says, why have you done, why have you treated us so? You know, your, your father and I, we were looking for you with great distress. You know, in the Ebonics version, it's like, Boy, you done drove us crazy looking for you. Where you been all this time? And she's got that mixture of relief and fear that even though you're trying to say to the child, I love you, it sounds like you're threatening them, you know? She says, where you been? We're in great distress. And Jesus' answer, 
<laughs> Why was y'all looking for me? You should have known where I would be in my father's house. Smaller translations talk about handling his father's business. At 12 years old, he is a little boy, independent of his parents, seeking his father's business. Now, we know there's supernatural things happening in this text, but I got to believe that there have been some natural deposits made in his life too, so that it was natural for him to go to the temple and not some other place, and to sit under God's instruction, and, and not the false wisdom of this world. And there he is holding court with the elders in the, in the temple, and there come his parents, and his parents see him, and they, and they marvel, and the people that he's talking to, they marvel as well. And it leaves us some good applications, doesn't it? Just his example here. Number one, many of you were converted at a young age. We praise God for you. That's a wonderful testimony, and you should cherish it. Some people have been led to say, I don't have a testimony because mom and dad led them to Christ at age five. Praise God. What a wonderful testimony. God has granted you to seek him in your youth, just as the Lord Jesus sought the Father in his youth. Rejoice in that. Number two, many of you were converted before your parents were converted. You came to faith in the Lord while your parents were still unbelieving. And that, too, is a tremendous grace from God. If you're, if you're here and your parents are not yet Christians, don't let that stop you, young man, young girl, from worshiping the Lord. When you're 12 and your parents don't come to church, but you can come, keep coming. Keep coming. You're following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're doing the very thing that he would have you do. You are seeking the Father's house and the Father's business. Some of you have earthly parents who don't understand your faith. That's a hard thing. But Jesus' parents didn't understand him. The Lord, Jesus, did not let that keep him from honoring both his earthly father and mother and his heavenly father. Did you notice at the nearly end of that text, verse 51, he goes back home with his parents, and the Bible says, and was submissive to them. Wow. The Lord of the universe, who clearly knew more than his parents did, and any other living adult did, who is, as was said early in the service, is wisdom incarnate, humbles himself and submits to his parents. What a remarkable example. A tough, tight walk, rope to walk, no doubt, but if you're here and you're a teenager or 12 or 10 and you believe the Lord Jesus Christ, you have trusted him and repented of your sins and your parents don't yet, pray for your parents and submit to them. Honor them. It's the first commandment with promise so that your days might be long. A fourth and final one. You may be here and you're one of those teenagers who think they know everything. Don't raise your hands. If that's you, we want you to know two things too. Two things. Number one, we used to think the same thing when we were teenagers, that we knew everything. And number two, you don't. You have no idea what you don't know. And some of the things you don't know are really a big danger to you. And it's foolish, the Bible says, 
to go forward in life acting as though you know everything while not heeding the counsel of people that God has placed in your life, particularly your parents. You realize that, that your parents' voice is the sound of God's authority in your life. And God's authority is meant for your protection and your blessing. You don't need to know everything, but you do need to know this one thing, that God will most often, most naturally work in your life through your parents and the counsel that your godly parents give. And, and maybe your parents aren't believers. He will work through the counsel that they give too. For sometimes they will give you very good counsel, which you should heed and weigh against the Scripture. And sometimes they'll give you very bad counsel, which you should not heed and weigh against the Scripture. And in either case, God will be proving himself wise and instructing you in the voice of your parents. You don't get any points for pretending you know everything. You actually lose a lot of points pretending you know everything and getting blindsided by the stuff you don't know. Far better to be humble. Far better to submit to authority. Far better to submit to those who will teach you God's word. And like Jesus, if there was ever a child who shouldn't have had to grow in wisdom and stature, it would have been Jesus. Far better to submit to God's word than your parents. And like Jesus, grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. So we should conclude. What do growing kids need? Righteous parents. Revealed purpose. Responsible parents. It's a very responsible thing that Mary and Joseph did after losing their child, going to seek him. And sometimes as parents, we prove our responsibility toward our kids, not by the things we do right when there's no pressure, but how we correct our wrongs in the midst of pressure how we go and seek their welfare even after we've dropped the ball. All kids need parents like that. And sometimes those parents will come from their natural family. Sometimes they will come from older men and women in the church. You consider that Jesus here in these, in these few verses is raised in an atmosphere of widespread godliness among older persons. His parents are righteous. Simeon is righteous. Anna is righteous. Everyone who comes into his life in these couple of chapters, and again, these are snippets of his life, but everyone who comes into his life loves the Lord, speaks the word of God over him, hopes for him, and believes in him, even as an infant. Isn't that what all our kids need? May it be so. Our Lord increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Can we ask for anything greater for our own children? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never been one more lowly than him. Never one more humble, more gentle. And even though as a boy he was the Lord of life and the Savior of the world, we see his humility. No pride, no arrogance. Doesn't even claim things that are rightful for him to claim. He waits on you and does your bidding, even submitting to imperfect parents. What a humble Savior. And it's because he is so humble that we are able to come to him 
for he will not quench out the smoking flax. He will not break the bruised reed. His yoke is gentle. His burden is light. And this morning, O oh Lord, if there's any who need a humble Savior, we pray that you would grant them grace to come to Jesus. If there's any who need, O oh Lord, uh, a gentle touch from you, pray, O oh Lord, that it would come to this great high priest who looks low and stoops low to gather the broken. So we pray, O oh Lord, let us get to know Jesus, to know him better than perhaps we ever had, and to walk more closely with him than perhaps we've ever imagined. It's his strong name we pray. Amen.